HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Lead me in the kitchen. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our history, share it on a plate. What do you? Sort of out of nowhere, in the middle of last week, fall finally hit Philadelphia. And I am thrilled. Uh, I've been pulling out sweaters and wearing inappropriately thick socks and finally using my oven again. Granted, I mostly only use my oven for roasting vegetables, sometimes making pizza. I was going to talk about having made brownies the other day, but then I remembered that A, they were from a box, and B, my partner did literally everything anyway. But... This week's guest has me inspired to finally try out baking. Ed Kimber is a delight. He was the winner of the first ever season of the super smash hit British reality show, The Great British Bake Off, and is since the author of three cookbooks with one on the way. I caught up with him via Skype about what his life was like before the show and the twists and turns it's taken in the nine years since. I guess how long have you thought of yourself as a baker? Um, I mean, I've been baking since I was a kid, but I say that I've been doing the job for nine years um, <laughs> because I guess that's when I started making money from it. Um, 
and I got my start was because of Bake Off and that was nine years ago and so I see it a kind of pre-Bake Off post-Bake Off um, and yeah that's how I earn a living after the fact. What was baking like for you pre-Bake Off? It was very very different because it was done for a different reason when I was in my old kind of job and life I had a job that I hated I was working in um I worked for a bank in the litigation department and it was a job I'd fallen into I um was one of those people that I was kind of a classic drifter so I had left university with a degree in politics um uh, international politics and that wasn't the most useful degree at the time for what I wanted to do mm-hmm. I tried to be uh, working in the charity sector but the problem with the charity sector, in this country at least, is you have to be able to work for free for so long. Every job I looked at was like, can you come and work for us for a year for free and you know, do an internship? I'm like, no, I don't have any money. <laughs> so um, I tried to do journalism for a while, but it was just impossible to get anything. So I kind of ended up falling into a temp job. I hated so much. I became so stressed with the job and so down with the job that baking kind of came back to me in a stronger way because I would use it as stress relief and as a creative outlet. And I used to say that I would um, spend all day at my office job just Googling recipes and just thinking about what I was going to make that night. And then kind of three years before Bake Off, I decided that I should be doing something for a career that made me happy. Both my parents are self-employed and they love their jobs, and they've always kind of taught me that it was much more important to do something that made me happy if I was paying my rent than (laughs) do something that made me millions but made me miserable. And I was being paid nothing, and I was miserable. So (laughs) it it didn't seem like the sensible thing to be doing. So I applied for culinary school and got turned down. And so those three years um, before Bake Off, I decided to kind of try and give myself an education at home almost so I would bake uh, every night something different a different technique or flavor or something to teach myself almost what I thought I would learn at culinary school and then after I'd been doing that for three years someone read my terrible truly awful uh, blog that I used to have and said you should apply for this and it was really funny because the advert was in um it's called, do you know what the Women's Institute is? I don't. It's basically a, I don't know how they describe themselves, but it, I think it was set up during one of the World War One or World War Two, And it was kind of like a women's effort for part of the war. But then it became this social club and they would teach things like conserving and flower arranging and baking. It was like kind of like skills, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's this kind of very social women's club movement that's been around for ever in the UK. And it's always kind of got this reputation of being very old fashioned and, you know, it's for an older generation. And so when they said they'd seen the advert in the WI magazine, I just kind of made assumptions about what the show would be. And also that was kind of the reputation of what people thought of with baking at the time. Um, right. <laughs> everybody assumed it would be, you know, very sweet old British ladies and then I rock off. <laughs> it was a, I think the showmakers really wanted to make sure it wasn't that because they wanted to try and break that outdated kind of stereotype of what 
speaking in the in Britain was at the time. Right. What was the application process like? Um, it was quite long, quite intense, really. You you have to fill in a very large kind of fifteen page um, application, and then they call you for an hour to kind of flesh out your basic knowledge to just see if you really have the knowledge to get through a show like that. And then you they invite you to add down to a multitude of um, in person. Uh, auditions and kind of pretend bake-offs effectively but I remember in my first real audition I think I realized how naive I was because one of the questions they asked me kind of offhand really was um do you bake a lot because you don't look it because at the time I was basically emaciated because I uh, I had I've had body issues a lot when I when I was younger still now and I'd kind of slimmed down to a crazy level but I didn't know that in my head I just thought I looked I still thought I looked massive but that's a different different issue entirely um and I was like yeah I bake all the time and I didn't realize what they were getting at because the guy then said oh you don't look like you bake a lot and I kind of told my story a little bit about my issues with weight genuinely not being like oh this will get me on tv and then this camera swings around in my head and starts asking Mm. me questions and I think looking back on it now, I think the producers thought, oh, this is a hook and we can use that as like a character hook. And right. now looking at TV, you know, you look at any TV show, especially reality, everyone has to fit into a certain slot. Um, and I think the producers instantly had that light bulb moment of, oh, he's the guy that used to be really big and now he's not, but he bakes. It doesn't make any sense. Um, mm. That was one of my overriding memories of the production. I genuinely never thought I'd get on the show. Wow. So then what was it like to to be on the show? Uh, you mentioned a little bit of like they wanted to make it different than what people would expect. So mm. I guess what was the experience like? I think one of the main differences, I think there's a couple of differences really, but one of them was at the time reality TV in the UK and just generally really, I think it's very negative. I think even if it purports to be about a talent, like say... American Idol or any of those shows mm-hmm. in reality I think a lot of them are about laughing at people it's not about uplifting people and the Bake Off has never really done that it's always been very gentle just kind of a softly softly celebrating people who do something well and really like it and I think when you see contestants like helping each other and people love when that happens I'm like that should just be how it is <laughs> Right. Um, but one of the questions I used to get all the time was, is it really that nice on the show? Like, are people really that supportive? And it's more than that, because most of what happens on the show is never filmed. And so mm-hmm. you have, you know, a tent full of 10 people, and they're filmed for maybe a third of the challenge. So the rest of the time, everyone's just chatting and baking and asking questions of each other. So it was a very supportive environment in the filming. But the rest of the experience with filming, the traveling and kind of the practicing at two in the morning, because I was still working full time during filming, was... Um, oh, my gosh. Intense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was not what I expected. Um, and I'd never done any TV before. So it was very... It kind of happened so quickly and then it was over. So it was this huge adrenaline buzz and kind of stress and... Um, no sleep at all 
Um, but it was, it was really fun at the same time. It was a real mix of things all happening at the same time, really. Yeah. What was it like, that kind of initial way that the producers saw you to be a hook as kind of like, oh, this is the guy who used to be mm. big and now is really thin. How did that, I guess, play out on the show or behind, not so much on the show, but I, I guess, I mean, what was that like for you behind the scenes? Mm. And was I that something actually... you were thinking about? <laughs> It, it was when I kind of went into the show initially, um, and that was mainly my own issues with my kind of weight. I thought it might be an issue, but then very quickly we realised that the show had made a very conscious decision somewhere along the line that they weren't going to try and do the kind of story that is attached to a lot of people. They didn't really dig into people's pasts quite in the same way that other shows did. So it was never an issue on the show. And the one thing that did happen, which was really, it threw me quite a lot, but it never made it to air. Um, We, halfway through filming the show, um, we had these interviews in um, kind of quite a weirdly dark room with like a light on you, like these intense, like, how are you doing halfway through the show interviews? And (laughs) I think they were just meant to be, I don't know if they were going to be in a separate episode or just interspersed throughout one of them, but they were kind of these very long, deep interviews. They were about an hour long. And mine focused entirely on what it was like to be gay and baking. Mm-hmm. And it was the weirdest questioning ever. It was like, one of the, the question that sticks out in my mind was, how does being gay affect your baking? And I was this really naive 24-year-old going, <laughs> what? I I did not know how to answer the question and the whole thing really threw me because I was so confused what was happening Um, and then a producer called me I think on the Monday after that weekend saying we don't know what was happening in that interview but we're not using it because it doesn't make sense because no one else got asked that sort of question. Right. And I think my producer, I knew her really well so I just think she started asking oddly personal questions um, but yeah, that never made it to air in the end. And I think they realized the show wasn't meant to be that deep on the story of the person. <laughs> Cause I think then it falls down into kind of cliches of reality TV, which the show I think is trying to avoid. Right. It seems kind of like, almost like they tried to put you in a, in a confessional box and dredge, yeah. dredge some stuff <laughs> up. Um, I think they just wanted raw emotion. <laughs> <laughs> you know right I like crying or it's you know dramatic moment right add some like big dramatic music <laughs> yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure it would have been like sad twinkly music as we talk about my life story <laughs> certainly it's it's one of those weird things where there definitely is an attachment to the show around especially gay men the show mm. has always without fail always had at least one gay guy on the show and I don't know if that's on purpose or whether there is some connection with um, gay guys in Britain that like baking I don't know but there definitely seems to be part of it and I think it's probably because the show's always seemed to try really hard to get a real broad spectrum of different people on the show and that's very clear that that's something they're trying for and so I don't know yeah it's 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 not something I thought would be part of the show or the conversation. And that's only because I think I was super naive going into the show. I remember 
doing a BBC reality show, you have to sit with a psychologist before you're allowed to enter the show effectively. And so it's wow. the, the last thing. Yeah, it's, it's an insurance thing, I think. And hmm. I think it's because something previously happened on a BBC show where they were seen as being at fault. Um, and so they make sure that you're psychologically sound to appear on a reality show. But it's a very, it's, it's a box ticking exercise. Not much happens. But I remember the, the guy said to me, do you have any skeletons in your closet? And I was like, well, I'm gay, but that's not a thing. And he said, oh, no, it will be because the papers in the UK are awful. So I'm sure one of the papers will write about it, like not necessarily in a positive fashion. Are you ready for that? And I was just, I was, it was like an hour before we got on a bus to go and film the first episode. And so I probably lied because I was like, well, I would quite like to do the show now. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was something I never thought would be an issue, really. Um, and that was probably me just being naive. But thankfully for me, it's not been a huge problem. I think for some people, they've had a lot more kind of online abuse for it than I have. Right. Um, from being on the show. Um which is why I was like, thankful I was on the first season because it was a much smaller show. So a lot less trolls watching. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I guess my next question was like, right, did the papers write about it or did you get questions that you didn't expect around sexual orientation or? No, what? not from papers, actually. The only thing I ever had was um, my publisher got me to do an interview and um, I didn't know who was doing the interview and it turned out to be the Daily Mail, which is, you know, not a very nice newspaper, very right wing. And mm. they asked, the, the journalist was very lovely and she was like a lifestyle journalist. And the only thing that I wondered about was she asked about my living situation. I was like, oh, I live in wherever with my boyfriend and, you know, said a little bit about that. And then I remember reading, it was a piece where three Bake Off winners had been interviewed and all of the others in the piece those bits were in and they were all um straight women and then my piece didn't mention my personal life and I was like oh that's interesting because mm. it's in everyone else's it was a very formulaic interview but mine had been quietly removed and I was like oh that's odd um but then not surprising from the newspaper um but most of the stuff I got was vague well not vague some negativity when I was on the show online but um it was for a whole host of reasons. That was just one of them. <laughs> one of them was I looked nerdy. One of them was I was very camp. And that turned out it was because I was very, I was very nervous being on the show. And I'm, mm. I'm naturally a very shy person and quite an introverted person. And I didn't know how to act on TV. And my kind of camp side just blew up. And it's just so funny to watch because it doesn't feel like the me that exists day to day it feels like this odd heightened version where I'm coping by being on TV it's very funny um I had to watch a little bit the other day and I hadn't seen uh, the bit where I win the show for so many years and it was just like it feels like someone else entirely um because I was so awkward I can see kind of my persona trying to figure out what to do with every moment because I had no idea how to act sure um, yeah it was very strange it's a really sweet clip actually so Ed won he felt a little bit awkward and overwhelmed and then that was it 
he went back to work and wrote what he describes as a pretty sassy and pretentious resignation letter and then moved to London to figure things out. The problem was it would be a few more months before his victory would actually air. So essentially, he had no job, no money, and not quite a plan. Stay tuned to hear how it all shook out after the break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Queer the Table. At this point in our story, Ed Kimber has just won the very first season of The Great British Bake Off and is figuring out where to go from there. Yeah, after the show, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to make my career from baking. Um, And I tried kitchens, I tried restaurants, and uh, I didn't like a lot of elements of it. One of them was a very, uh, not hostile, but, you know, the stereotype of kitchens is there because it's true a lot of the times. They're very macho. (laughs) They're often, you know, very not kind to female people to, you know, people who don't fit in really and so a few kitchens I worked in there was definitely a kind of bro-y homophobic vibe even if people were really nice to your face just that energy being around all the time wasn't fun right and on the other side of it I didn't find the work fulfilling because I found maybe naively I didn't know but being in a kitchen you never do a whole thing you're making an element of something over and over and over again I, I all I wanted to do was the whole creative process. I realized that I really liked the creation element of it more than the mechanical element of it. Mm-hmm. So I was given an opportunity to write a cookbook, and so I jumped on that, and that really was the most fulfilling thing I'd ever worked on. I loved it so incredibly. So I'm currently, I'm probably not allowed to tell you, but I keep telling everybody, I'm currently writing. <laughs> my fourth book which will be out um next year um which is great but it's very stressful because um 
I'm on a very tight deadline, so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But it's also stressful, but that's, that's life, so it's fine. <laughs> I went through a couple of Ed's books to prep for this interview and the aforementioned fall baking season. Sprinkled throughout them are what feel like little queer nods. There's a recipe for six-layered rainbow cake and a photo of two men holding hands at the table. It reminded me of my conversation with Julia Tertian earlier this season. She spoke really beautifully about what she sees as the unexpected power of cookbooks to be a little bit radical. I asked Ed if he had similar intentions in assembling his own books. Um, in my first book, I had been dating my then boyfriend and we were talking about, in cookbooks you have this thing called chapter openers and it's the you know, the page that just introduces each chapter and oftentimes they're incredibly boring and me and my editor were thinking about what we wanted to do and we came up with this idea of creating these kind of almost paintings with photography and they would always be of two people in situation but you would never see their faces it would be about the situation and so we um the first i think it's the first one is me and my boyfriend kind of sat next to each other and there's like there's a napkin on one of our knees a, a, a plate with a slice of cake on it and then we're holding hands and it's just a really simple little thing but it was something I really wanted to do and to talk about and just to kind of because especially because baking is seen as such a I don't know there's such a kind of there was at the time such a stereotype around it and I thought it was a really nice thing to put in there um, and there was little things like that dotted throughout the book and then funnily well not funnily quite tragically really my third book um I dedicated to him and then there's pictures of us and our family um dotted all throughout the book and then and then um the book went to print and it came out three months later and then we broke up a month later oh Oh, that is tragic yeah um but yeah for me it was kind of I remember I was talking to um, Nick Sharma about a similar kind of idea because one of the things that I loved about his book was you open on the first page, it's a picture of him and his husband on their wedding day and he talks so beautifully about his story and um, yeah, I do wish sometimes that my cookbooks had more of that but because of the publishing that I kind of go through, that's not what they're really after but I do talk about myself and so I think if you're talking about yourself naturally you talk about these things um and I thought some I thought some people were going to get pissed about the idea that they would open this picture but I think because the picture is quite subtle it's almost like it was there for me only but that I thought was also quite nice because it was something that I don't know it's it was very of the moment for me and I can look back on it with real joy because it just reminds me of a time but um yeah I do I, I would never censor myself and I think a cookbook is meant to be a, a relation to a person because otherwise I don't understand why you'd want to read it and um, I think it has to come from a person's perspective rather than just generic um and so I think it should reflect that person and yeah I would never censor myself because of that right Yeah, and I don't know, I think so often with these things, it's like most of the straight world doesn't even notice, but it means so, or, you know, whoever is in the mainstream and then whoever is kind of seeing themselves represented in the margin is, it means so much, so. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think, 
that was why it meant when I opened Nick's book and I saw that picture, I messaged him and sent him a message saying, I love the fact that that's the first thing you see. Um, because, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, especially for an American cookbook, it, it, that seems harder. Whereas I think it's less maybe of an issue here. Um, and that might be just perception. I don't know. But, um, yeah, there is something I think you're right. I think it's definitely much more important for the people it's talking to than the masses. Because, yeah, you're probably right. Most people never noticed. Right. Yeah, I think it's something that we kind of do for each other sometimes, which is <laughs> which is really sweet. It's like uh, that knowing wink of like, I know, it's good. Earlier on, Ed mentioned that he was painfully shy before and even during the production of The Great British Bake Off, which was sort of surprising to me. Granted, our only interactions before this interview had been on Twitter, but there he's quick to speak up about transphobia and homophobia in his personal life or food media and the political sphere. Without basically asking him how being gay affects his baking, I wanted to learn more about how he's felt about having and using such a huge platform post-Bake Off. I think it's a good question because I think earlier on in my career, I wouldn't have stood up for anything as much. And that was not for any reason other than I was a very kind of introverted, shy person and standing up for myself in that way wouldn't be something I naturally did. I was much more of a person to kind of stand at the back and just observe and I'm still at that in a lot of ways just because it's my nature but I definitely have done more and more publicly just because I think I don't know I don't know if it's just because the way the world has changed or because I've grown up and you know got a lot older um, and had more life experience um, that yeah I get really pissed off and sometimes I have to stop myself from tweeting really you know, things that I might regret so I do I do try and do a lot um but I think in, in the food world in the UK especially because I don't work in kitchens and that was a conscious choice mm-hmm. um I don't really encounter a lot of homophobia in my day-to-day job um I'm lucky that a lot of the the food media I work in is very female-centric um, most of the magazines I work for their entire staff are female um and so it's never really that macho energy that I don't like about kitchens doesn't exist day to day for me so it's more what I react to politically in the world so um I think most of my tweets are kind of around uh when I do tweet is around politics and um (laughs) idiotic decisions like the cake thing um yeah it's it's not something I have to think about with my work really it's more just me as a person I think if you exist in the world you have to stand up for what you believe in really and I don't know I think maybe because I I come from a quite religious background I wouldn't ever when I was a lot younger I wouldn't really have wanted to kind of stand up say against a religious issue because I wouldn't want to upset my parents but Mm -hmm. as I've got older I kind of just go well I have to stand up for myself because if you can't do that for yourself then that's just a real it's not a nice way to live to not be able to say what you think and feel and stand up for what you believe in um but yeah I think I've, I now I have to kind of edit myself because I find myself writing these uh, tweets sometimes that are political and I'm like that's just not going to be construed the right way because I think online especially Twitter is such a dumpster these days of people <laughs> misunderstanding what someone's saying 
Mm-hmm. And I have endless drafts in my folder of like me spouting off about people I really dislike. Um, I think because of what I do publicly, it's sometimes balancing the kind of negative attention that can come from that versus standing up for what you think. So it's it is difficult, but um, more and more these days, I just go just gonna say exactly what I think because life's too short. So there's that. I'm feeling really grateful for Ed and the thought of taking risks and taking up space and maybe making other people and myself a little bit uncomfortable through some hard conversations this week. I'm thinking specifically about tomorrow's Supreme Court cases, which if you aren't following, you should be. Wishing you a strong voice and a loving community and a warm kitchen at the end of the day to get through it. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo was designed by Natalie Uduella, and the theme song is by Denali Gillespie, who also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without the support of the whole team at the Heritage Radio Network. We are so thrilled to be on their roster, and you should definitely check out some of the other wonderful shows at heritageradionetwork.org. And lastly, if you're enjoying Queer the Table, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, and it makes us look cool. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.